It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. My name is John. I'm one of the elders here at Highlands. If you're a visitor, thank you for joining. It's good to be with you. Well, we've been working through a series for the past few weeks that traces the whole storyline of the Scripture. And we've camped out in a few places here. First is Genesis. We looked at how it all began, what went wrong. Now we're in Romans, and we're looking at what God did about what went wrong. So many people think the Bible is nothing more than a book of rules or some self-help or do's and don'ts. There's so much more in the Scriptures than that. In fact, the Scriptures tell a story, a coherent story from start to finish. And if we read the Scriptures without having eyes on that story, we, we miss so much. We miss the point. Now, ultimately, we'll finish up in the book of Revelation in the coming weeks, and we'll get to see how it all will end. Now, this morning, as you heard from Jonathan, we find ourselves in Romans 2. And I agree with him. These are very difficult texts. In fact, I think Stephen Sean liked to give me the most difficult text to, to preach on. That's okay, though. There's actually a lot in Romans 2, and there's so much that we really can't address every verse and every theological concept in a single sermon. So what I'm going to try to do is touch on the main point that Paul is is going after here and pushing into. Okay, so I'll, I'll do that from a relatively high level. In order to fully appreciate what God has done about our problem, we need to hover just a bit longer over the problem itself to let the weight of our dilemma sink in, to fully sink in. And this is what Paul does in the second half of chapter 1 into chapter 2 and even into chapter 3. The book of Romans is really the book on the gospel. It unpacks the gospel in an amazing way like no other book does, but he doesn't just focus only on the good news, on the atonement, on salvation. He brings us back to our issue, our problem, which is our sin. And it's a bit uncomfortable. In fact, if you read through these, these chapters, you, you really want Paul to turn the page, to, to move on, to go to the good news. But he hovers here for a long time, and it's, it's really quite uncomfortable. Steve mentioned this a few weeks back. We don't like talking about our sin. It's difficult. Even the Christian, we don't like to, to focus on it and discuss it and see it for what it is. But reflecting on our sin, even when it's not pleasant... What it does is it sets the stage for the gospel to shine through. Because the gospel is is really incoherent unless we truly understand what the problem is. We need to understand the problem as well as we can. Understanding our sin constructs the black backdrop that the good news of Jesus Christ can contrast against. And I think this is one of the reasons that Paul hovers here for almost two and a half chapters. Now what's interesting in Romans 2, is that Paul reveals a form of sin that might be less obvious to some of us. Okay, his first century audience may have been blind to this deep-rooted sin in their hearts, and we, as a 21st century Christian audience, we might be blind to it as well. So this, this text is very relevant for us because, and this is the importance, this form of sin, like all sin, okay, it can lead to moral superiority, to pride, to haughtiness, and ultimately, the danger is a self-righteousness that can lead people to hell. So it's very important for us this morning. Now what we'll discover is that all are at risk because all sin. The Jew, the Gentile, the religious, the irreligious, those with God's special revelation, those who have his word, 
and those only with God's natural revelation and, and the things that have been made. Okay, all sin. Therefore, all people need something. And this is the key. All people need God's righteousness in Christ and not their own righteousness. If you have your Bible with you, turn to chapter 1 and we'll finish the end of chapter 1 here. As I mentioned, we'll focus on mainly chapter 2, but I want you to see a transition from chapter 1 into chapter 2 because I think it's important that we see that. So turn in your Bible to chapter 1, starting in verse 18. As we go through the end of the chapter, Paul, what he's doing here, he's highlighting the wrath of God on unrighteous people. The wrath of God on unrighteous people. He says people who suppress the truth about God, verse 18, that implies they know the truth, but they push it down, they suppress the truth about God. People who don't have God's special revelation or his law as the Jews did, but nonetheless they're still guilty because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in what has been made. Okay, so he's basically saying there's, there's none with an excuse. All are without excuse. People who did not honor God or give thanks to him, in verse 21, but they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And that should bring up to mind, his first century Jewish audience may have thought of the Gentiles here, those who, who had polytheism and paganism, who worshipped idols. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 25. Okay, so it's, it's pretty clear here that Paul, he's mainly referring to the Gentiles in these verses. That, that's typically what you can take away from his aim here, is that he's, he's focusing on the Gentiles, those who were not chosen by God in the same way as the nation of Israel was, those who didn't have the covenant, the old covenant with God, the same way as the nation of Israel did. People without God's law, but yet still responsible for their sin. And then beginning in verse 29, Paul concludes by listing the sins they commit. And it's quite a list. He says this, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's quite a list. You can imagine here his, the Jews who were, who were part of the congregation listening to Paul's letter being read aloud and saying, you know what, Paul, you're right. Go get them. Go after those Gentiles. Go get them because they are ruthless. They're depraved. They're idolatrous sinners. And we're not like them. You can almost hear them thinking that or, or saying that. At the same time, it's as if Paul almost anticipates their response. He anticipates the response because... Um, what, he, what he opens in chapter 2, he goes right after the Jews. He anticipates a moral superiority, a pride, a haughty spirit, and their hypocrisy. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul essentially tells the Jews here, don't pretend like you're any better off. Okay, now ask yourself this question. Do you think the Jews ever committed the same sins, the list of sins I just read at the end of chapter 1? Many of those sins are sins of the heart, right? Covetousness, malice, envy, deceit, insolent, haughty, boastful, foolish, heartless, ruthless. Of course they did. We all, we all commit some of those sins. So Paul confronts and condemns their hypocrisy in very strong terms. And then in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God, you who judge others, yet do the same thing? Will you escape the judgment of God? The obvious answer is no. They won't escape the judgment of God. And then he says something very interesting in verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And I think that's the key here to what might be going on in their hearts. They had the scriptures, right? They knew the character of God, a God of kindness, mercy, and gracious, slow to anger, a God of patience. The question is, were they presuming on the basis of who God is that they were okay despite their sin? That their sin wasn't a problem? And they could go on continuing to condemn unbelieving Gentiles because they were God's chosen people. And God is patient and kind. Therefore, their sin wasn't a problem. Could they have been presuming that you can live a life of complacency or contentment with sin and still inherit the kingdom of God? And I think this is applicable for us because I'd like to ask, do we have that same temptation at times? Do we have the same temptation to think that we don't need to battle our sin? That you can live in harmony with sin and still inherit the kingdom of God simply because God is kind and merciful? Well, the short answer is we can't. The scriptures are clear here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Do not be deceived. And it's actually so easy for us to be deceived with this because we can think it's, it's just a heart, like... I'm not doing anything outwardly, okay? Maybe my sin is just in the heart and I'm harboring anger towards a brother or sister in Christ. Is that really that big of a deal? Does that really matter, right? What's the big deal? It's not hurting anyone. Christ died for those sins. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's clear there. Do we see that? What these Jews didn't understand, though, is that God's patience and his kindness won't last forever for the unrepentant. Because his patience and his kindness was actually meant to bring a response within us, to elicit a response within us. A a response of repentance, a grieving over sin, a turning from sin, Okay? And his patience will ne- was never meant to give us a false sense of security within our sin. And the truth is, his patience and kindness will run out for those who are still in their sin, who don't repent. Paul describes the outcome of those who presume on God's kindness and refuse to repent. In verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, that's a hard text. Now, I'd like you to see how Paul describes those who were being hypocritical here. Because later on in the, in the chapter, he describes them who saw themselves as morally superior. And pay, pay close attention because I'd like you to ask yourself, is there a parallel here to Christians, to modern-day Christians? Because I think there is. Verse 17, look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. Okay, so remember, they were the special people of God, right? They could approve what was excellent. They knew God's revealed will in the Scriptures. Anytime God tells us what pleases Him and how we're supposed to live in the Scriptures, that's called His revealed will. That's His will for us as we walk the path of faith. They knew that, and they knew it so much that they boasted in God. And I don't want you to read those things as if they're a negative, because they're not. We should all strive for those very same things. We should boast in God. The problem, however, is they were relying on these things in a self-righteous sense. That just because they were his chosen people and had the scriptures, that that was enough. That God didn't require something more from them, like a changed heart. A changed heart. Now consider the parallel here to Christians. We're a people of the word. We love God's word. We pray it, we preach it, we study it, we sing it. We know it through and through. In fact, we have the full revelation of his word, Old and New Testament, and we live by it, right? Can we be at risk of doing the same thing? Presuming our own righteousness before God because of our religiosity, because of our religious status. We teach, other, we teach others what God approves. We're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness instructor of the foolish. We do the same things. Yet, do we rely on our religiousness for right standing with God while committing the same sins we condemn in others? I think that's how these verses might apply to us today as well. Okay, And all the while, do we have hard and impenitent hearts? We should examine ourselves. These are the sort of texts that just make you examine yourself. They're too weighty and strong. And God's word cuts we can't overlook this or, or brush it aside as if this doesn't apply to us. This is a time when God's word requires us to examine ourselves. Paul actually takes it one step further. In verse 21, he says this, You then who teach, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And we would say, like, of course not. Right? We don't steal. I imagine there's very few people in here who actually steal. Maybe there is, I don't know, but you shouldn't steal. It's a, it's a bad thing, right? The Jews might have said, that's what the pagans do. We have the law. It's against God's word to steal. The Christian might say, that's what the unbeliever does. Those who steal are outside the walls of this building, right? Out there, they steal. And we might say, okay, fair enough. Maybe we don't steal outwardly. But do you covet? Where is your heart in relation to the sin that breeds the outward act of stealing. 
do you covet in the heart? Verse 22 says this, you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, our answer, along with the Jews, is of course not, we don't commit adultery. Churchgoers don't commit adultery, we know what God approves. Okay, we have his word, that's that's for the pagan, the Gentile, the non-religious people. We go to church, we read our Bibles, we're different. Fair enough. Do you lust in the heart? Do we lust in the heart? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.27 that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So where is your heart? Where is your heart? Not just the outward act of obedience. Are we guilty of hypocrisy, of moral superiority by judging others when we ourselves are guilty? And I think this is especially relevant for Christians because for right or wrong, a lot of the perception of Christians within the church is that we're a moral superior people, that we can be judgmental. Have you heard that from, from those who criticize the church, that we look down on others and we see ourselves just a little bit better than those outside the church? So it's relevant for us to think about how we see others. Do we look down on others, outsiders, unbelievers, for the sins we see them commit, but we still commit inwardly. Not just unbelievers either. Are we judgmental, morally superior toward other Christians? Maybe it's those who don't worship like us. Maybe it's those who read a different Bible translation or have tattoos or maybe they send their kids to public schools. Or I mean, you could, you could put a million things in there. How do we view other Christians? And all the while... If we're doing that, the sad part is this. We're forgetting that God saved us by grace. God saved us by grace. By what grounds do we have to boast? By what grounds do we have to think we're superior than anyone? It's a gift that we're saving. Everything we have in this life is a gift. From the next breath you take here in this room, that's a gift from God. Our salvation in Christ, that's a gift from God. All is a gift. A right understanding of the gospel can really help undercut hypocrisy, moral superiority, and pride. So where's your heart? Our heart condition is very important because this is what God cares about. God cares about the heart. Okay? Our heart condition is what needs to change, and only God can do it. Only God can do it. This is, this is one of the main drives of Paul in the first two chapters of Romans, that all people desperately need something. All people desperately need something. God's righteousness, not their own righteousness. All people left to their own devices are condemned. All people, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, the churchgoer, the Bible-knower, the Sunday school teacher, it doesn't matter. All people need something. Verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. All people need a God-righteousness. It's really the failure of religion in our society. Our world is really full of religion. There's so much religion. Even people who say they're not religious, they might act in a religious way and they don't even realize it. Our world is full of religion. And the world's religions will continue to tell us, do better, be better, strive harder, Strap up your shoes and and prove yourself. But can religious acts or religious status save? 
Is it enough? What can it give us? What good can it do? The answer is no, it cannot save. It isn't enough. And apart from a heart that's regenerate or a heart that's been made new by God's Spirit, born again, apart from that, all religion will not profit. It cannot save. In fact, it cannot give you the one thing you desperately need the most. It can't give it. It's, in, it's unable to give the one thing we all need the most. Jesus says in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born again. That's what Jesus says. Religion, even outward acts that appear good, are not enough. You need a changed heart. You need a changed heart. Now, look at verse 13 here. And I'd like you to listen to how Paul contrasts a Jew who only hears the law but doesn't do it with a Gentile who may not even have the law, but he obeys it. Okay, it's a description of a Gentile who's been born again. It's a description of a Gentile who has a new heart. Verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Okay, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Obedience is from the heart. It's not merely external obedience. That's what, that's what happens when God does a work in your heart and replaces a heart of stone, which is enslaved to sin, and replaces it with a heart of flesh, which is enslaved to God. Okay, we become obedient not just to the letter of the law, the outward obedience, but we... But by the spirit of the law, we become obedient, which is inward, heart obedience, which is what we need. And then Paul writes in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, that's a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit brings that about, not by the letter. Last sentence there in verse 29, his praise is not from man, but from God. So religiosity, being religious outwardly, while the heart is still cold and unrepentant, that does not please God. Okay? But what's interesting is it can please man. Man can be fooled by outward acts of obedience. Man can be fooled from what we seemingly think is a good, religious, righteous person. Right? Think of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. Right? Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. And he did that because they looked so clean and nice and tidy on the outside. They, were, they did all the right things. But inside they were rotting. They were decaying. Just like a tomb has bones and it rots and decays on the inside. Jesus, God doesn't... He's not fooled by outward acts of obedience. Okay? God is pleased when obedience stems from the heart brought about by the Spirit. And now, this is really the most beautiful part of the whole thing. We can't miss this. The Spirit of the law, or the perfect representation, depiction of the law, where outward obedience flows from an inward, obedient heart, what the Spirit of the law is ultimately pointing at 
is Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Jesus. You want to know what true heart transformation looks like when someone is born again? Look to Jesus. Okay, look to him. He's the model. He's the perfect representation of what it means to fulfill the law. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it's because Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. He fulfills the law perfectly that he has a perfect righteousness. There was not one thing in the law that he he failed at performing, both inward and outward obedience. He, he, He was perfect. And it's a righteousness that no other person could ever obtain by obeying the law. But you know what's interesting here? If you read through chapter 2, some of the chapter might seem to contradict that. That we can't obtain a righteousness. Because there are numerous references in chapter 2 to God judging people and justifying people according to their works. In fact, if you read chapter 2 in a vacuum and didn't use the rest of Scripture to help you interpret it, you might get the sense that we're justified by works. That's not the case. We're justified through faith alone. But let me give you some examples here. Verse 6 says, He will render to each according to his works. Verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For those of us who love salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, do those verses make you a bit uncomfortable? And they're all true. And they don't contradict the rest of Scripture. There's a couple ways we should think about these verses. The first is this. Are there any who obey the law perfectly? Are there any perfect doers of the law out there? Because if there is, they'll be declared righteous before God. That's his promise. But the scripture gives an emphatic no. None are righteous. No, not one. Okay, there are none who obey the law perfectly. And the second way we can think about it is is this. After we come to faith, these works will be evidences that our faith is real. They 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 will validate a heart that's been changed and born again. But the works won't justify us before God. That's faith alone. But the works will validate that we have true saving faith. A great example of this is in Genesis, where in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God, trusted in God, and God credited to him righteousness because of his faith. Okay, that's, that's the heart faith. That's saving faith. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 22, and that faith worked out in a work that we could see where Abraham took Isaac to the altar, obeying God to sacrifice his son. Okay, so his works played out, but the works weren't grounds for justification. That happened when he believed God in Genesis 15. Okay, so that's the same way we can think about these. On Judgment Day, our works will be evident. But they're not going to be grounds for us in our salvation. They'll be evidences that our faith is genuine and our faith has saved us, okay? Through faith alone. But even then, even then, after coming to faith, we don't obey God's law perfectly, right? We don't 
We don't obey God perfectly in this life. Even after being born again, we still fall short. We still fall short. We still need a Savior. We all need a God's righteousness, not our own. God righteousness, Christ's righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ since he was the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He's the only one. All people need God's righteousness because all people left to their own devices are condemned. Jew, the Gentile, the religious, the irreligious, the churchgoer, the Bible knower, the Sunday school teacher. Those things don't matter. They're not salvific. They're important, but not for salvation. Okay? God shows no partiality. All need a God's righteousness, which is only offered through Jesus Christ. When we really begin to understand the depth of our sin, not just the surface sin we can see, but the deep-rooted, the moral superiority, the judgmental, the hypocritical sin that might reside in the heart, where we can actually go as far as condemning others, yet do the same thing, once we begin to see it clearly how truly lost we are, then the gift of God's own righteousness, the gift of God's own righteousness shines that much brighter and it tastes that much sweeter to us because we can truly comprehend our need for it. And it it is so beautiful. The God of the universe knew the one thing we all desperately needed. It wasn't anything we could conjure up within ourselves. The only thing that could solve our dilemma was a gift of his own perfect righteousness to our account. He knew the one thing we needed, and he gave it to us free of charge. I mean, it's, it's almost too much to fathom. Free of charge. Now, someone here today or, or online might be thinking, I agree, I need God's righteousness. I realize I don't have my own. How do I go about getting it? What do I got to do to get the righteousness of God for me? What do I do? Well, that's where we're headed in the coming weeks. But I don't, like, I don't like cliffhangers any more than you do, so I'll leave you with this preview from Romans 3.20. Okay? Paul writes this. It's such an amazing verse. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That means made available apart from the law. That's really good news for us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's pray.